This series in First uh, Peter has been very timely for us as a church. I mean, obviously, it's a great book with incredible truth, <clears throat> but it's uh, we didn't plan it this way, but it's been um, the perfect book for us to study during this time. And if you guys remember last week, I preached the first and kind of a, a two-part mini-series within this series. And last week's message was called the, the, the Timeless Lamb. And we talked about God's foreknowledge, about the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world for us, his elect. And we talked about the majesty of how Paul combined the idea of foreknowledge, prognosis, at the beginning and the end of this chapter. And this week we're doing the second part of this two-week two mini-series. And this was called the Eternal Word or the Timeless Word. So it's the Timeless Lamb and the eternal or timeless word. So I'm going to put a verse up there for you to read before I do my introduction. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We studied First John, if you remember, as a church, and one of the things we learned is the best way to know that you have eternal life is to read what he writes in First John. And so the question I ask is, how can you know for certain if your soul has been purified and transformed by the power of the gospel. How can you know that for sure? In my career as a pastor, it is the most often asked question that I field. How can I really know? How can anyone really know? It's one of the things that most people who need spiritual comfort seem to want to know, either for themselves or for a loved one. How can I know that they were children of God? How can I know that I'm a child of God? How can I know that I'll go to heaven? Or how can I know that they who have left us are in heaven? <clears throat> in America, even when life gets tough, we have it easy compared to these suffering believers that Peter is writing to. I think we've chronicled that in this series. Imagine, if you will, if every aspect of your life was unstable, unsure, and hope of salvation was the only thing you had. Or perhaps hope of the salvation of those you loved. Being confident of your connection or their connection to the Father becomes so critical and so crucial, especially if you're facing potential earthly demise. Some people might be surprised to know that Scripture actually gives us a way to know for certain if we've been saved. I have something to say to you if you are those among those who are confident you have eternal life. I have something for you today. I also have something to say to you who aren't too sure if you have eternal life. You know you're a Christian, but you're not for certain. I also have something for those of you who are not ready yet to follow Jesus. You too, if you want could know for sure if you have eternal life. Let's look at our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to 25, the last part of this beautiful first chapter. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's look at the history of this passage. I want to talk about how love is displayed. Before we do that, I want you to understand why this chapter is so well written. We are dealing with a very experienced apostle Peter by now. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter may actually be, as I've now been able to dive into it in depth the last six weeks, it might be the greatest, most brilliantly written spiritual pep talk in church history. This is, listen to me, and I know you maybe can't appreciate it fully, but after diving in, I can tell you this is extremely sophisticated literature written by a former commercial fisherman. It's why, as a matter of fact, some people think there's no way Peter could have written this. He was just a fisherman. But Peter, in reality, after, as he writes 1 Peter, he's been serving Jesus and the church for 30 years now. He's learned quite a bit. He's been through quite a bit. He's studied. He's preached. He's, he's seen a lot of things. But also, remember, this same Peter was also filled with wisdom and power from the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, if you remember. And that is evidenced by the fact that this fisherman... Matter of fact, people, some people even said in Acts chapter 2 when he was preaching on the southern steps of the temple, who is this uneducated Galilean who's preaching to us in our own language? And we remember that sermon on Acts 2. Scripture says thousands were added to the Lord that day as he preached, as people were coming into the temple. So that's who Peter is. And this glorious comfort that he has provided in this chapter provided for these persecuted believers through his systematic theology is beautiful and it's brilliant. And I will tell you, if anyone could comfort them by providing affirmation of the genuineness of their faith, it would be the Apostle Peter. I mean, if if somebody was going to try to encourage you, don't worry, you're a child of God, it would be Peter because he would know better than anyone. If anyone could bring comfort by breaking down their role in this incredible timeless drama of redemption that we studied in week two and week three, it's Peter. No one alive at this point in history, no one alive has more credit, credibility, maybe no one since, has more credibility in affirming their holiness. Like if an apostle says you're holy, I mean, that's pretty good, Right? I mean, that must have been extremely comforting for these persecuted believers to have the Apostle Peter saying, you're doing great, your faith is genuine, you are part of this incredible drama of redemption, and you have been purified. And then Peter brilliantly instructs them how God's sovereignty, last week we talked about this, was the key to helping them escape the prison of now, the prison of suffering and hardship they're in right now. He says, listen, yes, it's hard, but once you learn to live in the reality of your sovereign God, you can begin to escape the moment of that suffering. And then he does this incredible thing. He made simple this complex concept of the timeless lamb foreknown as the sacrifice for their sins and now he has one more brilliant comforting theological lesson for these persecuted saints but before you can appreciate the theology i want to talk about his conflict with paul this incredibly gifted wise brilliant experienced apostle had a problem. And before we get to that brilliance in chapter 1, you need to explore Peter's very public conflict with Paul. Remember, Paul was the one who planted the churches that Peter's writing to. 
You know what the conflict was over? You know what Peter and Paul were arguing about? Actually, what Paul called him out on? It was over whether or not Jewish Christians should eat at the same table as Gentile Christians. There were some Jews who said, yes, they're saved, but we cannot eat. We cannot have table fellowship with Gentiles. They're unclean. And for political reasons, Peter didn't believe that, but for political reasons, Peter took the wrong side of this because he didn't want to ruffle feathers of early Jewish Christians. And he was ministering to Judaizers, people who believed that Gentiles were lesser brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul, as you could probably guess, confronted Peter pretty strongly. You know, Peter's readers that he's writing to right now, they have known about this conflict with Paul. Much had been written about it in early church history. In fact, all Gentile believers knew about this table fellowship sort of controversy between Peter and Paul. And it was, frankly, quite hurtful for them, as you can imagine. What do you mean we can't eat with you? We follow the same Lord. We follow the same Jesus. And you think we're lower than you? These churches had reason, due to past mistakes, to be wary of Peter. Why should we take your word for anything? You don't even think we can eat with you. But at this point, for some reason, they don't have any reservations with him. What happened? Well, over the years, Jewish believers had been astounded by the Gentile faithfulness, especially in the face of this persecution. And now their faith, these Gentile believers, Paul said it, Peter said it, their faith is renowned. Like, Jews couldn't stop talking about, can you believe how faithful these Gentile pagan, former pagan people are as followers of Jesus? Remember, Paul had planted these churches. They were more precious to him than anything. And at this point, about a year before Peter writes the letter, Paul is facing execution. Now, Paul was known throughout his letters for addressing any type of conflict. He never shied away from anything. And he would you know, confront it very directly in all of his letters. As well, by the way, and when there was a resolution, he would also bring that out. He said, yes, this was a fight, but now it has been resolved. Like he, he publicly said that with Mark. And Paul wrote many letters in prison about this as he's about to die. And he would be petitioning these other apostles, make sure these Gentile saints are cared for when I'm gone. I've given everything I have. I've sacrificed my whole life to plant these churches and to preach the gospel to them. I'm getting ready to die. They're going to need apostolic oversight. Peter, John, please look after them. You know, I got to tell you, I look forward to reading all this correspondence one day in heaven between Paul and the other apostles. It's probably fascinating. And as Paul did with Mark and Barnabas, it is rational to assume that Paul told these Gentile Christians, hey, listen, Peter and I are good now. We're on the same team. I'm getting ready to die, which we know he said in Philippians and other letters. I'm getting ready to die. You can trust them. Remember, John wrote letters to Gentile churches that Paul had planted after Paul was dead. Now Peter has taken the baton for these churches in modern-day Turkey. We don't know how many other letters Paul wrote to them, to these Gentile believers, telling them, listen, Peter's okay, he'll be taking over. But the background of this conflict and its resolution gives you critical context to why Peter's command today to love one another earnestly has street cred. 
I love, I don't know about you, but I love this relational dynamic. It takes this emotional letter from Peter and ratchets it up and makes it even more stunning and miraculous and beautiful. Which brings us to this love one another command. It's not some shallow, pithy, meme-worthy, obligatory command. This is a heartfelt thing that Peter's writing. He's saying, listen, if you want all this assurance that I've given you, if you want continued assurance that your souls have been purified, you better just keep loving one another. You better keep being together no matter what. And Peter and Paul themselves have modeled this important truth of loving one another in this passage. And here's the truth they model. The gospel makes you fall in love with God's people no matter what. And Peter is all in. These believers are now just as precious to him as they were to Paul. In fact, Peter is risking his life in writing this letter. Here's what he's saying. If the gospel has taken hold of your hearts, one thing is certain, you will continue your love for one another. Peter and their father in the faith, Paul, have both displayed with their reconciliation what this relentless love looks like. So that's the history. And let's look at the spiritual. There's a lot here. Because this is some of the most brilliant three or four verses you're going to read in the New Testament. And Peter uses two object lessons to teach how God's word will always result. Let me say it again. God's word will always result in love for one another. He uses two illustrations. He uses God's word and he uses grass. And so the idea of grass is this temporary beauty, right? So many things are competing for their love and their loyalty, especially if it meant escaping persecution. And it's important to understand that the gospel is superior to anything else that they might fall in love with because all else they might love will wither and die. As a matter of fact, this is the verse that Peter quotes in this passage, Isaiah 40, 6 and 8. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And by the way, this concept of flesh like withering grass is all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. So let me give you an example of what this looks like. For several weeks every year in both Israel and this region in Turkey, barren fields come alive during the rainy season in spring, filled with rich green grass and breathtaking colorful flowers. Then a few weeks later, when the rainy season stops and the summer heat comes, they all look like this. Every year. So it is an image and a picture these readers would understand. They would understand this reference in Isaiah because as in Israel, every spring in their area, their hillsides would come to life and then wither away. So that's the first picture he uses. But then he says, but the word of God endures forever. The eternal word he creates. And this, this is where the most brilliant writing I've seen so far in my study of the New Testament. And I've studied a lot of it, obviously, but I've been more impressed with this writing than even Paul's. Peter creates a brilliant literary funnel illustrating how the gospel they've heard preached by Paul is timeless 
and it has the power to purify them. And Peter, the way he does this, the way he builds this funnel, get this, he uses three different words intentionally to explain God's word. Going from the very broadest concept to the very most specific. And the first word he uses is the Greek word aletheos, which means all things which are true in any circumstance. It could be science, it could be spiritual truth, philosophical truth, any of that, anything that has been true before the foundation of the world, even before the Old Testament was written. So Aletheos, he says, in the first part of the passage, he says, since your souls have been purified by Aletheos, by anything and everything that is true. That's a very broad net about truth. It could mean two plus two equals four. It could mean the day is 24 hours. It could mean the moon revolves around the earth. It could mean anything. He says all truth has purified you. So that's the broad part of the funnel. As a matter of fact, there's a verse that explains this in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Isn't that great? In the beginning was the word, the beginning, before the world. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning. So that's Aletheus. And then there's a second Greek word that he uses to describe it. And this is the word logu or logos from the Greek word logos. I love this. The logos is the full written collection of the decrees from God, particularly the Old Testament law and the prophets. So what Peter says is all truth has purified you. And then he says, he quotes Isaiah and he explains that the Logos is also the written word. So it goes from all truth to the written truth, the whole Bible. That's where he used this quote for Isaiah. It's the full truth and the written word, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, written by men inspired long ago. So that's the second part of the funnel. So you can see it's wide with Aletheus, and then it's a little bit narrow with Logos. And then the third word, the end of the funnel, is Rhema. You know what Rhema means? Spoken truth. Specifically defined topic or verbal narrative. This is the bottom of Peter's narrative funnel explaining the timeless word of God. He is connecting that the gospel, which they heard preached from who, by the way? Paul? that that gospel is connected to timeless truth. It is a narrative funnel explaining how God's eternal word came down to them in spoken form just for them at the right time. What Peter is saying is this timeless truth before the foundation of the world was brought to you in verbal form through the gospel so that you could hear it, embrace it, understand it, comprehend it, and then trust and believe in it and then have it purify your souls. You want a verse for that one? Romans 10, 17. See what Paul says? So faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. He's talking about rhema. It's the same word, rhema. Faith come by rhema. Hearing, audible. So you come from ethereal truth to written truth to spoken truth. Specific, direct, spoken truth. 
God starts with all truth, puts it into written form in the Old Testament, and then filters it down to the gospel from Paul. And by the way, when Peter's doing this, this is not a mistake. He is giving props to Paul. He says, the gospel which you heard, they heard it from Paul. Peter's funnel shows that truth to scripture, to spoken gospel, all truth from all eternity past was especially prepared for them in this message. And then we see this command to love one another. Peter explains that the evidence of this miraculous rhema, this spoken word that came from Aletheia, and then filtered down through Logos, and now to rhema, this rhema has purified their souls, and the evidence of that is that it will continue to love one another. Their loyalty to one another in this persecuted state is inspired by eternal aletheos, eternal truth in spoken form, the gospel. That's why Paul said what? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for our salvation. <clears throat> and Peter says you will continue to have deep love for one another. And by the way, this isn't doctrine that Peter's just making up out of thin air. Well, if you love Jesus, you're going to love each other. It's actually a direct teaching from Jesus Christ. He says it in John. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. He says it like four times. In fact, you want even a, even a more beautiful example of how Peter learned this? Peter himself was challenged by Jesus with this very truth in a very emotional, challenging interaction. Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And he asked him again, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. And then the third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Jesus, I don't know where, what more else I have to do to prove to you. Of course I love you. And here's what Peter's answer was. He says, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And what did Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Love my sheep. Jesus, Paul, and Peter make it very clear. This timeless spoken rhema, this gospel, will inevitably inspire them to have an earnest, undying love for one another. Fact is, you cannot have purified souls and then still have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude with the church. Did you hear me? You cannot have a purified soul and just kind of have the church at arm's length. So look at the personal. What about us? What are we supposed to do? We titled this, Where's the Love? This was the sermon preview this week. If the gospel has purified your soul, you have a sincere passion for your church family, not just an occasional distant crush. You want to know if you're a child of God? Would you like to leave here today with the confidence of knowing whether or not you know Jesus? Well, then I will tell you, there will be abundant evidence you earnestly love his church. But the problem is, there's this loving grass problem that we have. You remember in Hebrews, some of you might remember this, Paul said, don't forsake or forget to gather together as children of God. Anybody remember that verse? It sounds familiar. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves. You know, when Paul said that, he wasn't talking about don't sleep in. Here's what he was saying. Don't allow the threat of death to keep you from gathering. In other words, don't let the love of withering flesh be something you love more than God's church. And when one of those first century believers didn't show up, 
Their response was, I wonder if they're out of town on vacation, or I wonder if it's raining outside. You know, know what the answer, the question they asked? Boy, I hope they weren't arrested or killed by the Romans. I'm concerned they're not here. That's what Paul was talking about. Boy, Americans certainly have lowered the bar, huh? I mean, we'll neglect gathering together for anything. Weariness, I'm too stressed, anger, rain. Rain's a big one. Apparently, Labor Day is one, too, apparently. I just don't know. <laughs> Listen to me. I love you. I'm your pastor, but I'm telling you, you cannot be a soul purified by the eternal rhema and have a laissez-faire attitude toward church. It does not work. It's just not compatible with the power of people who say they've been transformed by the timeless truth of the gospel. And there are many self-proclaimed Christians that demonstrate a deeper love for withering grass and flowers than God's people. And there are all types of withering grass competing for our attention, aren't they? Aren't there? There's celebrity, political ideology, family, some relationships, addiction. There's a lot of withering grass that we fall in love with more than God's people all the time. And they are beautiful. <clears throat> But soon all that is to wither. <clears throat> They're all withering fields of grass and flowers, like art is withering grass, music withering grass, technology, wealth, possessions, all of it. One day all those beautiful flowers and those beautiful meadows, they will die, just like the weeds you yank out of your flower beds at home. Church, why do we allow so often withering grass and flowers to keep us from the eternal lamb, the eternal word, and our church family. If you don't love the church, stop kidding yourself. You don't really love Jesus. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. The bottom line is if you don't love the church, the word has not purified your soul yet. So it's important that we learn what it means to have a love for one another. Here's what John says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Are you getting a hint here that this is all throughout the New Testament? There was like 30 verses I could have put up there. I had to edit out most of them. I know people who claim to follow Jesus but are mostly disconnected at arm's length from the church, from God's people. I mean, they won't even commit to being together, let alone earnestly serving together with them side by side, shoulder by shoulder for the kingdom of God, taking the rhema to other people. How much do you love his people compared to your non-church life? Look, I understand we must pay attention to withering grass and flowers sometimes. I have a non-church business life just like all of you. But when that withering grass becomes the excuse to neglect being with your brothers and sisters, it is a serious, serious problem. If you lack affection or the desire to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus says you haven't been purified. When the eternal word in the form of the gospel, has truly taken root in your hearts, that seed imperishable that Peter describes, you will love the church. 
there will be overwhelming, undeniable evidence in how you invest your time, your talent, and your treasure when it relates to God's people. And listen to me. This is not ethereal. You cannot, let's say this the right way, you cannot love the church from a distance. This has to be a tactile experience. One that allows you to be comforting. One that allows you to be in a position of serving, laboring together. You'll be together. You'll serve together. You'll sacrifice for one another. You're going to be there in the real real-time, person-to-person manner when you're needed. Not just, as, the, as James said, let's not just love in word, but in deed. That means you got to be there. And what does he say the last part? In truth, aletheia. Isn't that beautiful? When the word of God has purified your soul, you will have an unquenchable desire to be together, to build one another up, to serve shoulder to shoulder, side by side. And this, in fact, is the most important evidence and, to, and the way to know for sure that the eternal word has purified your soul. You will relentlessly love one another. So here's my question for you in closing. Does this truth that I've shared with you encourage you? Does your love for the church prove your soul has been purified? Or has this given you something to think about? This is a command from our Lord, not just Peter. He says, this is my command, that you love one another. And he says, this is how everyone else will know that you are my disciples. They will look at your love and say, wow. Those guys are committed to each other. Church, this is how you can know for sure. You will love his people. You will love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. Heavenly Father, while we're thankful that you give us a way of knowing that we have this purified soul from the eternal word of God. It's also a little bit of a cause for introspection. There's a lot of withering grass and fading flowers competing for our affection. And while we recognize that we do live in a world and we have to be in it, we confess to you that we need your spirit to keep our love for your church in the forefront. Lord, we don't want to have a distant crush on the church. We don't want to just love the church in word. Oh, I love the church. We want to be able to say that we love it in deed and in truth so that we can know for sure that our souls have been purified. For those that are listening on the stream or here in the building this morning, for those who are asking this question and finding it a little bit uneasy, I pray that you would give them the supernatural passion for your church that only comes from the implanted word of God. I pray for those 
who have been encouraged today. They could say, man, I just know I just have this heartbreaking passion for the church. I pray that you would inspire them to continue to love. And for those who aren't sure they're followers of Jesus yet, I pray that you would make this the key that they look for to know that the purification process has begun. Help us, Jesus, to develop overwhelming, undeniable evidence that we are in love with your people like these first century saints were. In Jesus' name, amen. Go this week, love one another, because this is how you'll know that you abide in him.